0: Welcome back to the Table Church Podcast, Megan. Yes? Do you believe in Yetis? I, not the cooler, not the coffee I was going to say,
1: I own like six of them.
0: <laughs> believe in <laughs> uh, them? I have one.
1: Yeah, believe in them. I've purchased several. No, you're talking about like Big The Foot? mythical
0: creature. It, I don't think it's Bigfoot, is it? Is, is
1: Bigfoot... It? Let me Google Bigfoot's it. Not I'm a yeti. already googling. We're I talking about two Bigfoot different things. Bigfoot is a yeti, mm, right?
0: I think yeti is like the abominable snowman.
1: Oh, like in the uh, Himalayas? Yeah. Which is the yeti is an ape-like creature purported to inhabit the Himalayan mountain range in Asia. Do you know why I know that so quickly that it was in the Himalayas? Why? Because of uh, Animal Kingdom in Disney World. There's like a ride where it looks like a big Himalayan mountain and there's a, there's there a, a sign that says, beware of Yeti. Okay. Okay. So, well,
0: you're, you're up to speed. <laughs> I mean, other than the fact that you thought it was also the same as Bigfoot. So a Yeti looks Bigfoot's like a in backpack. North America.
1: So a Yeti is like a Himalayan creature that looks like a backpacking gorilla.
0: Yes. Well, the reason I bring it up is I just learned on another podcast that Jane Goodall, like the... The lady who lived with the chimps and gorillas and stuff.
1: Yes, I'm aware.
0: She was a firm believer in the Yeti, in the Yeti, in the abominable snowman.
1: Wow.
0: She was a firm believer.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) That just
0: it. It was newsworthy. I thought. I thought that was interesting, and so I'm passing that along to our audience. Why? They didn't. No. No, they just said it happened. It Goodall. was on the it was on the Rebuilders podcast with really? Mark Sayers and <laughs> Jane Goodall just, on
1: how Bigfoot might be real. There's no, a YouTube video. Abominable. Snow.
0: Oh, really? So she believed in Bigfoot too.
1: Uh, Jane Goodall, Bigfoot might exist. <laughs> <laughs> I. This is. This ties into. I'm, I'm
0: googling Jane Goodall Yeti. Mm-hmm. Okay, I um, see the Bigfoot one.
1: Goodall explains.
0: Okay, so this is interesting because my information was wrong. She believes in Bigfoot.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes, Jane Goodall believes Bigfoot might exist. Yahoo News.
1: (laughs) I mean, if it was on Yahoo News, it's definitely true that Jane Goodall believes that Bigfoot might exist.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I just want to... Just have some compassion for anyone on the podcast you were listening to that confused Bigfoot with a Yeti. Because I believe in my consciousness they are linked so much so that I forgot they weren't Um, the same thing. But I get it. I get it. The Yeti is a different part of the world.
0: They're both mythical apes, right? Uh, Is the Yeti necessarily a primate? I can't remember what you just read.
1: Um, The Yeti is apparently, let me see.
0: And the Yeti and Abominable Snowman are the same. I think.
1: (laughs) Now that I don't know. First of all, also, I mostly have a picture of the yeti in my mind from like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like Mm -hmm. those Christmas shows. Whoa! And
0: that was certainly a primate. Like if we discovered ape-like creature, if we discovered another species of large Arctic bear, that wouldn't be the yeti. It's got to be an ape.
1: Okay. Now the abominable snowman is apparently correlated to. The Yeti. the Yeti. Yes, and there's that brilliant picture from. Is it Rudolph or is it from a different one of those it's, like it's Christmas? One of the Rudolph movies. Yeah. Those Christmasy movies. Mm-hmm. The Snow Beast. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, anyhow, brilliant. So Jane Goodall just said, "Look, you can't prove it's not true." Is this? Yeah. Is this the case?
0: Well, okay. Now that we've googled it, it's ruined a little. Like Jane Goodall <laughs> believes Bigfoot might be real. Um.
1: So she didn't believe she'd seen one, or I mean,
0: we should probably dig into it more.
1: I think that any true scientist is gonna gonna have a gracious answer for go, that kind of thing. They're gonna go, I can't prove like, it's Like, why not? not? Like, yeah. a primate that walks on two legs yeah. isn't unbelievable. It's like, and how if a lot it of... lives in the Himalayas, that's inaccessible mm-hmm. even today.
0: Although Bigfoot we're talking about Canada, but
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, Bigfoot. <laughs> she wasn't talking about a Yeti. She She's was talking, about, talking Bigfoot. about Bigfoot. Bigfoot feels less real to me. Yeah. It feels less true. Because, because I, it's locale I have is no closer. <laughs> about Canada having the capacity for a creature like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's too I have close. No
1: imagination left for that.
0: <laughs> it's too close. Himalayan Mountains might as well be another world. Who knows what can live there?
1: <laughs> Listen if we learned anything here, it's, um, g- Google it.
0: It's, it. It reminds Google me it. of how a lot of Christians will <laughs> respond to atheists. Well, you can't, bl- you can't prove he doesn't exist. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I like, I mean, but where does the weight lie? Like oh, I, if the proof really is on that doesn't exist side, you do have to like call that into account. It's not, it's not a nail in a coffin, but, yeah. um, I, I just find it highly unlikely that a creature could exist in Canada, like Harry and the Hendersons. Do you remember mm-hmm. that show? Mm-hmm. Harry and the yeah. Hendersons. Was that Bigfoot?
0: Yep. That was Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah. That was a good movie.
1: For anyone under the age of 35, you're going to have to Google that.
0: Yeah. That's good. Yeah.
1: It was a good show. All right. Okay. So this reminds me okay. of something that I feel like I maybe briefly mentioned this on the podcast once before, but if if so, it's only because I think this is just such a a fascinating story. Of human development (laughs) in in history okay okay um so i mean if you were if you were to describe like let's look back at like the 17th and 18th century the enlightenment i'm just gonna give you a shot since you're so educated give it like one sentence what was the enlightenment
0: um
1: like what did we want in the enlightenment
0: the enlightenment had to do with um An awakening of our belief in the possibility of humanity to progress itself Mm -hmm. into utopia.
1: Yeah, like we can embrace the world and all the things that have always seemed uh, previous to this point. Um, You know, at least in the Western world, people were saying we can look at all these things that look so mystical. Mm -hmm. Like uh, we can explain them. For thousands of years, we've been like, how does the sun travel? Right. You know,
0: (laughs) now we can explain them and we can harness them. Yeah. Uh, We can Mm -hmm. command nature.
1: Yeah. And so it's not that, that nature the natural world all these things aren't beautiful. It's just that they're more beautiful when you can harness the reason in them and start to like uh partner with that to create mm-hmm. a better world.
0: Yeah. yeah. I would go on to include a shift in our, uh, our re- uh sense of reason uh to a you know a belief that uh the the individual human mind can um guide itself unto truth
1: Mm -hmm. you can build a castle in your mind yes and inhabit it uh to your own choosing yeah you You can can develop yourself you can construct
0: yeah truth in your mind through reason
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so where in the past people would rely on like myth or religion things like that to rule them essentially and not and, you know, maybe not think for themselves as much. Now people are saying, no, 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 you can harness this. Right. You can do this yourself.
0: The pre, you know, the medieval world and such ancient world believed that truth had to be revealed Mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. The enlightenment says, no, no, you, oh rational human, can Mm -hmm. come unto all truth yourself.
1: Yes. And of course this is a privileged few in the enlightenment that could philosophize about these things yeah the want, european like, men yeah uh <laughs> yeah. european men who did yeah. whatever they wanted pretty much mm-hmm. <laughs> while everyone else is still just trying to like make bread and not get the plague right, right. okay <laughs> so <laughs> uh so anyway you think about like that point in western history mm-hmm. okay the enlightenment and then you get into um you know like the 1800s you've got if you study literature art any of those things they really map perfectly onto what's happening in every other part of that society at a time they really reflect and you know correlate with each other so uh in the 1800s you've got sir arthur conan doyle Mm -hmm. writing the sherlock Holmes series
2: yeah
1: and um If you think about that series, this is Victorian England, when he's writing Mm -hmm. these stories. And so you've got Sherlock Holmes and his partner Watson. Watson is like the everyman figure. He's Mm -hmm. a doctor, a man of science, but he's just some dude, right? Like he's just trying to figure out, he's just our stand-in in the story. And he's narrating these stories about these mysteries that get solved, where the mysteries pile up and they look absolutely impossible. Like it looks like there's no possible way that this could have happened without some sort of spiritual or mystical thing happening, or how is it possible this one person could have done all this crime, like whatever. There's always something that looks absolutely impossible. And by the end of the story, it wraps up with this like, Sherlock Holmes, the logic messiah Mm -hmm. coming in to explain to you, oh, here, this looked impossible, but actually with logic, I can prove to you how this happened.
0: The humanity's power for rational deduction. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So very modern ideas of like this is this is how we rationalize with the world. You know, nothing's impossible. It's just that we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And he has this superhuman ability for logic. And so and then, of course, because it's Victorian England, it still wraps up very tidy. You know, it's not nihilistic or anything. It's mm-hmm. very tidy um, towards progress. You yep. know, there's always another episode coming. You know, it's it's very warm and fuzzy in, in sure. its own way. OK, so that's Sherlock Holmes. Um, and then you've got in 1904. So we're shifting into the, you know, 20th century. J.M. uh publishes his play Peter Pan. So that starts to play in England and you've got this time where the enlightenment has really shaped all these things moving on into the modern world and in Victorian England where people are still like embracing reason and all of that stuff. There's this lovely little children's story that comes out in 1904 and just absolutely sweeps the nation. Like Mm -hmm. all the children are just wrapped up in fairies and lost boys and Mm -hmm. being child, you know, and all that stuff. 1914, just 10 years later, World War I begins. And so you've got all of these like little boys and girls that were running around, you know, just like carefree, you know, embracing their imaginations. They're now all dying, you mm-hmm. know. Okay. That's <laughs> pleasant. So, yeah. But I mean, that's what's happening in England, right? Like right. like they shift from this like kind of idealized Victorian England period where the family is really central and they're really trying to wrap around these ideas of you know this like progress in society like what's the ideal and John Wesley is in this time too you know like they're trying to like reform society to be as whole as possible Mm -hmm. the war comes and just tears everything apart okay this is I promise all going somewhere where's this going (laughs) so (laughs) during World War one there's a nine-year-old girl named Frances who's living in the South African colonies with her parents. Her dad gets conscripted into the war. Mm -hmm. And so in 1917, um, he goes off to war and she and her mother move back to England, okay? Um, And Francis, they're out in the country just trying to ignore that the war is happening. So Francis is allowed to play outside as much as she wants she's got a 16 year old cousin so francis is nine she's got a 16 year old cousin named elsie who plays with her every day and what happens is francis and elsie are outside playing all the time they're never getting back home in time for dinner things like that they come back filthy every day and so every day francis and elsie are getting scolded for coming back late and being filthy and one day francis is just so sick of getting corrected about this that she says look I can't get back on time because I'm too preoccupied with the fairies. And she explains that the forest is full of fairies. Mm -hmm. And of course no one believes her, but her 16 year old cousin who at that time was like old enough to get married. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like, no, 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 it's true. So she's corroborating the story and like, no, there's absolutely fairies in this forest. And so they, um, they're like, no, 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 we can prove it. So they take, um, Elsie's dad's camera Mm -hmm. out into the forest and they take pictures Mm -hmm. of these fairies. Okay. And I want to just interject here that at the time personal cameras were a totally new thing. Like nobody Mm -hmm. had a camera, right? So like what's, who's to say, right? (laughs) This is impossible. (laughs) So long story, cutting it short. Um, the, the girls, take many 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 pictures with these fairies and just have this like irrefutable proof that it's true so I want you to click on the link that I showed you
0: so just a backstory. story Megan has sent me a, a something and yes. I'm not supposed to look at it so I haven't looked at it yet but I need to tell you as you were telling the story I have seen this picture before <laughs> <laughs> So just open
1: it up describe to the people what you see
0: okay I've heard the story Probably yeah. for me, because I've
1: <laughs> probably told it three or four times.
0: No, I've, I've read it somewhere, but I've, uh, yeah. Yeah, I see a little girl surrounded by what looks like to be very fake fairies.
1: <laughs> I would describe these fake fairies as having very posh flapper haircuts.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yep.
0: They're they styling fairies.
1: They don't look even remotely real. No. It looks completely made up
0: clearly like a cartoon fairy like paper dolls mm-hmm.
1: yes okay so here's the thing though arthur conan doyle you know are like master of logic mm-hmm. he has always kind of like dabbled in spiritualism yep. but never took it too seriously and then um you know as he gets older his alcoholic father finally dies and that is the same year that he kills sherlock holmes Mhm. So that he can spend more time researching fairies, researching exist. spiritualism. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So he, uh you know, like he's really invested in this at this time. And so when he hears about this story, he sends like a camera crew mm-hmm. with all this fancy equipment to go prove that these girls are telling the truth. And then the girls, of course, are like, "Well, you know, the fairies don't just show themselves to anyone," <laughs> <laughs> and they dig their heels in. Yeah. And long story. Hopefully cutting it pretty short, Arthur Conan Doyle digs in and believes these are true, like for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And the girls, it's a grist that lasts for decades. Like they just right. make.
0: It's like this I think she's an old woman before yeah. she admits. In nineteen eighty. Yeah. In
1: nineteen eighty, uh, the the younger girl, mm-hmm. Francis, admits this was all fake.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: and so it's just fascinating to me. Like, um, And if I was going to tie it up, I would just say we wrap our arms around reason because we want to be able to explain the crazy stuff that Mm -hmm. happens in the world. But when you get enough death or destruction, you start to see the usefulness of some mysticism. Yeah, (laughs) You know, maybe I don't want to rule everything and understand everything for myself. Maybe I do have a natural inclination to want to believe there's some other power greater than me, Mm -hmm. and that I don't know everything, and I can't know everything, and maybe there's some sort of, and you always see, like, that ebb and flow, like, you grow up in a really strong Bible-believing church that an answer for everything, and then you grow up and become an Anglican, you know, or something like that, like, we Mm -hmm. have that, like, natural pull, but it's just fascinating to me that a man that smart Mm -hmm. could look at those pictures, and the funniest thing is that those pictures, some of them were taken from a book that Arthur Conan Doyle authored a short story in mm-hmm. so they're like actual illustrations <laughs> from an actual book yeah. that he was published in, and he didn't he steal belie-
0: like he just, just so so badly wanted. it so this uh this ties into my theory of why we're so obsessed with Halloween yeah. I mean, like my neighbors <laughs> some some of my neighbors were sitting around one day and thought, you know, you know what I want to spend hundreds of dollars on." <laughs> A graveyard in my front lawn. Yep. Like, and I think, um, I think there's this latent need to re-enchant our world that mm-hmm. the enlightenment has disenchanted, you know, like we mm-hmm. need some sort of transcendence. And I would even go farther to say, I'm not, literally, I'm, I just wrote about this in a sermon for Advent, but, um, I think that it's not even so much transcendence that we need. It's eschatology. Like, we need a broad story of destiny that we can hold on to for hope in times of despair, mm-hmm. you know? And the enlightenment and secular modernity has just ripped all that out of our hands in some ways. And so we we do the weirdest things to try to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like,
1: we will almost say, that stuff is so ridiculous. I don't believe in any of that. But then we go, well, but maybe this is true.
0: But, you know, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't believe a single word of the actual Christmas story, someone might say, but for some reason, I'm drawn drawn to the traditions of Christmas mm-hmm. around that time of year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And I want to put a headless horseman in my lawn because like, I want there to be something else. I want there to Does be something. Does your
1: neighbor have a headless horseman? I don't know, lawn?
0: they might. They've got all sorts of ghoulish things. Do you remember things.
1: my neighbors in Sioux Falls oh, every yeah. year with mm-hmm. the blow-up graveyard yeah. and the like, witch cackle? Yeah,
0: there's, there's sounds. <laughs> That sounds, that went 24-7. <laughs> so, yeah, there's something to it, that it. We're in a bind. We're in a pickle, culturally speaking. Um, and, I, I mean, not to be too predictable here, but I think the gospel is the solution, you know. Mm-hmm. But we, so, um, we've been sold a bill of goods that says there's nothing beyond the physical world, which, by the way, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, has written a massive 800-page book on that process to where we got to there. And the story is not the way we usually think. It's not that science just disproved everything that we believed. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different story than that um, that has a mixture of historical factors to it. Um, I don't even know where I was going to. But anyway, we want so badly, like we, we believe that on the one hand, that like science has disproven anything about God or spiritual. Mm-hmm. And yet we desperately need it to, to have any sort of coherence, meaning and purpose in our lives. Mm-hmm. We're eschatological beings. Mm-hmm. We, so we we're don't in a pickle.
1: want, most people cannot grasp the idea that really nothing matters. Mm-hmm. You we, know, well, and we, we, even when we believe that we create meaning, we're to hardwired, say hardwired not to, to, you know, even, even someone who's just like staunchly certain that there's nothing more to life than the fact that we happen to be alive um, they'll still make meaning out of we'll make the most meaningful life you want out of what you've got you know mm-hmm. like we have to have that
0: <laughs> this is why we flock to politicians more than we ever have because they're messiahs they're mm-hmm. eschatological figures they're going to restore hope, destiny and purpose to us mm-hmm. you know until the first hundred days is a flop and we yeah like flock I don't believe
1: I don't believe because I've experienced it that I have much power to change much in the world but if we can find the right person to put in a position of power that I would never take, maybe they can do <laughs> yeah. it. That's what we want.
0: <laughs> so. Well, this is not what this podcast was going to be about. No,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's still going to be about what it was going to yeah, be about.
0: We, yeah, we're we're going to do this.
1: Yeah, let's go. Uh, so, but that's are... a
0: fascinating conversation that I would love to talk more about. Really.
1: <laughs> um. So we are we're in the second episode of four episodes walking through our thoughts on Jim Wilder's book Renovated. So this is all about the intersection between brain science and spiritual and emotional maturity. So how do we become people who are um, growing into the shape of the person of Jesus through partnership with the Holy Spirit and how can we engage what we know from science about our brains and how our bodies work and things like that in order to become the most, you know, spiritually and emotionally mature person we can be right Mm -hmm. now. So it's a good book. Yeah, it is. It's a really good book. So in today's episode, um, I'm going to make a few promises about what we'll talk about. Although (laughs) check me at the end and see if this is true. Um, we're going to discover the key to emotional maturity. Like if you get nothing else out of this episode, you will leave knowing the thing you need to know to become emotionally and spiritually mature.
0: That's clickbaity right there. Yeah.
1: We're going to give you directions, um, to find the kingdom of God. You know, like, uh, do you know how to get to Sesame street? Mm. Can you tell someone how to get to Sesame street? Mm -mm. I can't, but I can (laughs) tell you how to get to the kingdom of God. Okay. we're going to give you directions for that. And then we're going to identify, one of your most nagging relational pitfalls, just, you know, we're going to just name one, one thing that is just really making your life not great right now. Not you, Phil, but you, the collective. I felt all a little us, bit attacked. There. All of us, the collective okay. you. Y'all. Uh-huh. The y'all. We're going to send you off with a tool to help you practice your way out of it. Cool. I promise. I promise. Wow. All
0: right. Okay. Those are lofty, yes. lofty promises. Okay. Should we dive in? Yes.
1: Yeah, so we're going to talk about chapter two, three, and four today.
0: Oh, I only read two and three. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Oops. Oh, wait. No, I read three and four. Did you? So, because <laughs> la- I thought last week was two, three, it was no, one and two. No, last
1: week was just one.
0: Okay. Well, then I'm good.
1: I promise, folks, we wrote this down. But, I'm good. Um, Last week, you did talk about chapter two a bit, but I That's why.
0: I was thinking it was, we we're doing both. <laughs>
1: we're on rails. We're on rails. Okay. So, um, anyway, essentially I can, we can move on to three and four. Did you read three and four? Uh Okay. Well, I can cover chapter two very quick. Tell us about chapter two. Chapter two. It's on spiritual and emotional maturity. So this I think is really important to just circle back to. And we didn't talk about this last week. Um, so, um, they, they talk about the differences between your feelings and your desires and your will. OK, so your level of emotional maturity evolves within this range of human essentials, um, mostly contained within your feelings, desires and emotions. So it's important to understand that these are all related, but they're distinct from each other. OK, so you can say like, Phil, I feel so tired today. Right. Yep. I have a feeling I feel tired. I want to quit working early,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, because I feel so tired and I'm overwhelmed,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. okay? So that's an emotion. Mm -hmm. So you've got, I feel tired, I wanna quit working, that's my desire because it's in response to my feelings, and I'm overwhelmed. That's a more complex thing, you know, an emotion that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling overwhelmed. So it's separate from being tired, but they're all related to each other, right? They immediately Mm -hmm. affect each other. Okay, so your feelings are blind. Most of the time we're blind to our feelings. We don't know where they come from, We are just having a feeling and we can't always name why. Or we think we know why, but it's not really the reason why. Okay. So a lot of the time, like your interaction with your feelings is a bit wishy washy. You have no idea why you're feeling what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Like you might be mad at someone, but you don't really know you're feeling it because they remind you of your dad.
0: Yeah. Some (laughs) people can't even, you know, well, I should say some people. At some point or another, we all can't identify even what we're feeling. Yeah. Like sometimes just naming what we're feeling is half the battle.
1: Yeah, it can be hard. Your desires, those have blinders on. So your desires have tunnel vision. They just want something. They have an object and they want it. They don't care about your other desires. Every desire is like an individual lone ranger. It's a lone wolf. It just wants what it wants. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you can, that's why people feel like they're at war with themselves. Like, I wanna have a really great job and I wanna take a nap. (laughs) 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 They're, you, you know, they're both desires. They seem to conflict with each other sometimes and you have to like just learn how to distinguish what your desires are saying right okay and then here's a quote from Dallas Willard he says in our culture one of the things we're most apt to miss is the difference between the desire and will mm-hmm. so the will is meant to be the arbitrator of desires
2: mm-hmm.
1: okay yeah. so we often talk about what our desires are and we're taught in our culture, like we're trained, we're conditioned to talk about what do you want? Like follow That's your, your heart. Yep. Your That's, desires equal your will. Yeah. That's what we in often In our think. culture, we talk about desires as if they are our will yes. and they are not. They're separate things. And it's one of the most important things you need to learn when you become a Christian is mm-hmm. that what you want and desire is not equal to your will.
0: Yes. <laughs> the things that... Yeah, you have an appetite for, aren't necessary. your will should be trained to actually, um, yeah, arbitrate between the correct desires.
1: Mm-hmm. And the fact that when you become a Christian, the whole point is to renovate mm-hmm. your desires slowly uh, so that you become a person who desires the same things Jesus does. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's possible for the spirit to do that. You can't do it on your own. But the idea that, um, you, you just hear it so often in culture. So just be aware of it when you do, that people are like, what do you want? Like, what do you deeply desire? Um, that's different than what am I setting my course toward?
0: Yeah. So <laughs> this is hitting on a really deep point of dissonance between the emerging culture we are in today and Christian belief.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because um, increasingly, our ethic in our culture is simply to baptize what you want and feel, Mm -hmm. you know? In fact, um, they have a term for it, we've talked about it, I've preached on it, the age of authenticity, yeah, it gets this idea that um, what is right and good for me is to live out my impulses.
1: Mm -hmm. And it would be betraying your optimal self
0: it would be doing violence to myself yes, you'd be hurting traumatizing to yourself and to so deny any, yourself anyone who inhibits that speaks against it looks askance at it mm-hmm. is doing violence to me because they are not in, in some way inhibiting me from mm-hmm. actualizing my desires
1: yeah so someone on the outside of you trying to um, insert themselves into telling you how to govern what you most naturally feel and desire is looked at as abuse.
0: Yeah. And I think a good example, if you just want to, like, real quick snapshot of our culture in order to see how this is true, it's the elevation of the word choice. hmm Where choice is assumed to just be a virtue in and of itself. mm mm-hmm. um, Obvious example would be the pro-choice movement, although mm-hmm. I would say that's 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 far from the just only Just essentially
1: example. anything that has to do with what you do with your body or your mm-hmm. money or, you know, your brain, those types of things. But, the stuff that you do to live your life.
0: And yet that's how our culture sees it broadly. Like, well, having chosen it is simply the, that's all the moral anchor mm-hmm. we need
1: for The it, choice you know? in itself is the virtue that, mm-hmm. you know, that we want to protect that choice. Right. But um, that's fine. The society can say that. But as a Christian, as a person who's trying to understand how to best live your life, mm-hmm. we understand that we are going to submit ourselves to a higher choice, a higher will outside of our own ability to make a choice. We're submitting ourselves to the will of God who is an ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. So our culture may very well elevate choice as this ultimate expression Mm -hmm. that we get to examine our deepest desires and hopefully live in a society that becomes more and more utopian toward getting to live out your deepest desires. to the best of your ability, as long as you don't infringe on someone else's. Mm -hmm. Christians say there is a high desire (laughs) above us, you know, for the will of God to be done in the world. And that that is where we're directing our will. So we may have desires and desires are not in themselves wrong. But when you understand that you have a will and you can align your will to the best of your ability toward the will of God, you will start to have a governing system for how you mitigate your yes. desires in yeah. your actual lived life,
0: and there's there's a deep incoherence between that and a world that values choice as a moral virtue. Mm-hmm. That's my point.
1: And you don't have to make the world match up with what Christians believe about the will of God. You just have to understand it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is operating on a different right. Operating they're gonna system
0: exactly. They're gonna they're gonna do their thing. Mm-hmm. The world has What's an operating
1: system. That's fine. We have an operating system as Christians and, uh, when you become a Christian, you need to understand that as quickly as possible. You have a whole new operating system that's taking over your life. And if you try to live with the world's OS and be a Christian, it'll just constantly conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. So here's a big point. I promised we were going to get to number one. All right. What is the key to becoming an emotionally and spiritually mature giant in the world? You got to learn.
0: Tell me what it is.
1: (laughs) The key is this. Doing what you don't want to do is the key to emotional maturity.
2: Mm.
0: Like every time,
2: no matter what it is?
0: (laughs) No.
1: But the whole point of ethics as it's developed over time is really these ideas developing to give you a reason for not doing what you want to do and for doing what you don't want to do because so often the higher desires that we have conflict with the lower desires that we want to Mm -hmm. quickly fulfill Mm -hmm. right so if you want to be a better person if you want to be a holy person you have to learn how to not do the things you want to do and to do the things you don't want to do of course every rule that's Not going to be all the time. Mm -hmm. The goal is not only to have uh, the ability to deny yourself the things that you know you don't actually want to choose because your will is towards something better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You got to learn how to deny yourself and not do stuff you want to do in in pursuit of a higher goal,
2: right? right?
1: To align Mm -hmm. yourself with God's will. And you got to learn to do stuff you don't want to do because you're aligning your will with a higher goal with God's will. And so if you can learn to habitually stop from just following your desires and and to look at them and say, does fulfilling this desire put me in alignment with this higher will that I am aligning my will to, or does it tear me away, mm-hmm. right? So your ability to distinguish between those things and to do a lot of things that you don't wanna do and deny yourself doing a lot of things you do want to do, Um, That's a key you have to learn how to do that And of course it's not all the time and the whole point and this is where Christians stop a lot of times thinking The whole point of the Christian life is to just uh, learn the right things to do and do them whether you like it or not But the point of this book the point of you know The pursuit of holiness is that as you align your will to the best of your ability with the Spirit with the will of God you will start to desire stuff that God desires So eventually (laughs) you're moving toward becoming a person who more often desires and wants what God wants in the first place. And you find yourself like we, we talked about last week, um, that quote from Dallas Wheeler, do you, do you like habitually the thing about loving your enemies? What was that quote? Do you
0: spontaneously respond in love to your enemies?
1: So that would be, um, proof evidence that you've habitually lined your will with the spirit of god with the will of god so much that your desires are starting to transform so that you have a desire and can fulfill it Mm -hmm. immediately and and it's in alignment with the will of god it doesn't mean you're always gonna react that way you know but it's Mm -hmm. it's about understanding so desires aren't bad (laughs) but it's just about laying your desires at the altar of the will of god and saying okay god you know which which one which ones of these should I chase, and which ones should I just put in a box Yeah. <laughs> for something else? So um, that's the key: is just being able to habitually stop yourself from fulfilling every one of your desires as soon as you want to, and to put them, you know, up against the will of God mm-hmm. and what God desires. So,
0: shall I take us into chapter three? Yes. Um. So, chapter three, Jim Wilder talks. It's called thinking with god and he proposes this fascinating hypothesis uh and it starts by talking about the 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 phenomenon of like having a mutual mind with somebody Mm -hmm. and this is like when you uh and somebody are communicating almost non-verbally but you know and it happens in milliseconds like and he goes into the brain science behind it but it's like you know a good example might be a basketball team like Mm -hmm you're sprinting on the court alongside your teammates one of you has the ball and you do back behind the back pass to the other person it's like they knew you were going to do it mm-hmm. like there's some sort of a mutual mind thing going on or um i mean you you pull up to a four-way stop and the you there's these you know commun- there's a communication that happens with the person at, other person at the intersection where you're like you wave each other on or whatever you know what i mm-hmm. mean you um, know you're
1: both kind of submitting yourselves to the politeness of like mm-hmm. who should go first and kind yep. of
0: You're trying to get through a crowded place with your spouse and you just kind of know each other what to do and where to go and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So there's this kind of mutual mind state that we can get to through like micro gestures and expressions and things like that. Um, And and one of the big points in the chapter is that um, uh, we can think with people, you know, Mm -hmm. not just think about people, but like we're thinking with people. We have like a mutual mind going on here Mm -hmm. where we're like dialoguing, making thoughts and executing together in this almost synchronized way. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a fascinating capability that humans seem to have. And so he says, what, what if we can do that with God? Like, what if you can think not just about God, like, gee, what would God want from me here?
2: Mm-hmm. What
0: if you can have like a mutual mind with God mm-hmm. and think with God, not just about God? And so that's kind of what they're talking about, which is I don't know, like, and he takes us into the, like the neurobiological. Yeah, I would basis say just reading that
1: chapter because there's so much in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I think it's kind of just a fascinating way to think about it. I think mm-hmm. it's awesome, and and it's it's precisely what, when you really get down to it, being a, um, you know, a vine in the branch of mm-hmm. Christ must be ultimately like we mm-hmm. are, with in you know, we're, Paul talks about us being in Christ all the time, so. Mm-hmm. It's just putting like scientific language to spiritual formation. Yep. And I
1: mean, I say stuff like this all the time. I'm sure if you've been around Table Church for a while, if you've used the discipleship pathway, we use this phrase a lot. But there's a difference between talking about God and talking with God. And there's even a difference between talking to God, like he's an object and talking with God, like it's a conversation, you know, we'll use that language a lot because there's a difference. And and the key to to like the most phenomenal spiritual growth that you have probably ever received, if you look back on it, is it's times when you didn't just know the right thing, but you felt like you had an experience with God where something happened back and forth Mm -hmm. and it created a bond between the two of you that changed you somehow. Right. And it wasn't information that did it. It was the interaction that did it.
0: And that's key because he talks about how you can have like a mutual mind with somebody you don't know at the grocery store for mm-hmm. a brief moment, but that doesn't change who you are. That doesn't change your character. Nope. But the way your character changes is when you have a mutual mind state with someone you've attached to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my wife and I, when we have that sort of a synthesis, you know, like we're thinking on the same page and stuff like that, Um, you know, we grow in our love Mm -hmm. because we also have an attachment to one another. Mm -hmm. And same with children to parents and stuff like that.
1: And he talks about how beginning at about five months old, you start to have this ability to have a mutual mind with someone to kind of, uh, you know, your your interactions coordinate to the point where you can see someone and sort of anticipate what they're gonna think or say or do or what they'll think is funny, and you mm-hmm. can kind of have that mutual moment, even yep. with babies. Yeah, and you get that because you like you play all kinds of games with your baby. To, yeah, you, you know, feel like you're they, communicating with because them because you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and that's the key where people who have had a high level of trauma or neglect when they're really young. They have a harder time with this with people. And it. And they talk about it in the book. It maps on their relationship with God, too, where there's just right. so many things that don't feel natural because they don't know how to, they haven't learned those skills to be able to connect their brain to somebody else because that wasn't safe. Yep. And so they struggle for their whole life with that if they don't get that when they're young. And I mean, that's that even if you had that with your parents, but you never had that with God, you can often feel a bit afraid of interacting with God. <laughs> yes. So the same thing, but you can heal.
0: Yep, you can heal. Character formation can't happen when you can't when you can't attach. And mm-hmm. so, it even says it, on, it says the brain system that forms and changes character runs under mutual mind, but not under focused conscious attention. What this means is that you can't change your character through. Focused, conscious, Mm -hmm. you know, like I'm going to sit here and think really hard about changing my character. Yeah, that's not how it happens. Unfortunately, most of our discipleship in church revolves around that Mm
2: -hmm.
0: focused, conscious side of things rather than this kind of subconscious mutual mind stuff.
1: And last week we talked a lot about safety and how you have to be safe before you can grow. And that was another big point from these chapters was you can't be secure in emotional or spiritual maturity unless you understand the kingdom of God and live in it. So they're talking about how, and I talked about what are the directions to the kingdom of God? Dallas Willard would always say the kingdom of God is where God's, um, where God wants, where what God wants to get done gets done. So it's the range of his effective will. Mm-hmm. And so it just means the kingdom of God is happening wherever, wherever God is and what God wants to be happening is happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that means you can access the kingdom of God right now. And you're more and more and more in the kingdom of God, even while you're in the world, when you are aligning yourselves with what God wants to get done, getting done. Yeah. That's the kingdom of God. And so for Christians, if you're like, if most of your relationship in the church has felt like trauma or just confusion. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so the idea is you can right now interact with God. He can talk with you. You can have conversations with him and you can get to know his heart, you know, kind of like at this point, there are certain things where we talked about mutual mind. Like if somebody um, emailed the church a question, I could, in many cases know exactly what you would say and like mm-hmm. write an email on your behalf, <laughs> right? Like yeah. there's certain things where I'm like, I know exactly what Phil would think about this. Mm-hmm. And that's the same way where like the more that you get to know God, you just start to know his character to the point where you know already in advance what he would say to something. So it's much less about like black or white, like God, what should I do right now? Mm-hmm. You know who God is so you know, you already know in advance what he would say about what you're thinking. <laughs>
0: Yeah, (laughs) you You have mutual mind.
1: Yeah, you have a mutual mind. But the key is that
0: is that uh, the character formation doesn't happen without attachment. And so Mm -hmm. he starts. They talk about the idea of attaching to God, Mm -hmm. um, similar to how a child attaches to a parent, Mm -hmm. because only within that particular kind of relationship can character formation occur. Mm -hmm. And so, just to reiterate, like spiritual development and growth happens at this kind of unconscious, unthought level um, with the ingredients of attachment and like a mutual mind, Mm -hmm. like a a deep kind of connection.
1: And it's why, and you can't just stop at saying, I can have a mutual mind relationship attachment to God, but avoid the church, avoid other Christians or Mm -hmm. pick and choose (laughs) the people that I'm with. Because the point is, if your brain is wired to learn through relationships and experiences together, In relationship with people and with God um, you can't possibly have a a pick-and-choose way of saying I'm just gonna attach myself to God but I'm gonna avoid Mm -hmm. people because that's just not logical it doesn't make sense like your entire self is meant to be formed in relationship with God with people because if God is constantly in relationship with people and the story of the Bible is in many ways a story of God making sure he has relationship with people Mm -hmm. (laughs) even if they keep breaking it he keeps keeping it and so you have to admit you cannot curate a spiritual life for yourself where you can delude yourself into thinking you can be intimate with god and not need to be intimate with people that you didn't choose to be intimate with
0: (laughs) they'll even talk about how um you know we've talked about it attachment with god but another part of Character formation is the ability to answer the question what What do my people do? Mm-hmm. What, like being able to put yourself as part of a we. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't remember how they say it exactly in the book, but it's more or less the idea that you have to be able to answer the question of who are we? What how do my people respond? Mm-hmm. How do my people view this thing? Mm-hmm. Because we're kind of tribal, you know, and, and we it's about necessary that earlier, for us to be healthy.
1: With all the stuff with like in the culture, the culture is going to say, protect your ability to choose for yourself, how you live your life at all costs. Right. And okay. That's the philosophy of our culture that we want to say, if you're not hurting anybody else, you get to do anything you want. Right. Mm-hmm. The kingdom of God says the will of God is above everybody else's will and it's decided, like, this is this is the ultimate thing to pursue. So we understand as Christians our we shifts from culture or our own selfishness. And it says the we is what's the Trinity saying and doing. Yeah, And that's what we are. Mm-hmm. That's what we want.
0: Mm. It's um, a fascinating chapter.
1: Can we quick do the little illustration from chapter 4 here? I yeah. just want to leave people with something really practical. Totally. So... In chapter four, they have a chart, and I linked the chart in the show notes. And so it's called the, the Components of the Human Person. That's the chapter. And so it's basically looking at all the spheres that make up who you are. So really quick, you can go to the show notes. You can click the link. You can look at the picture yourself. Um, Phil, do you have a picture of it in front of you? I do. Okay. Um, so you've kind of imagined like this series of circles. So at the very center, you've got your spirit. And Dallas Willard would always explain that that's like your heart and your will like the spirit is like that deepest core of you Um, Where we often talk about like saving souls But really like this is sort of more like what we're saying when we say that like is your will decided Mm -hmm. On the will of God are you submitted to that? Um, Like your core who you are and then you've got the next circle out You've got your mind where your thoughts and your feelings live So that intellectual world that you've got And then outside of that, you've got your body. So the case you were living in um, and all those intricacies. Your meat bag. bag. And then you've got outside of your own self, you've got that social circle. So that's like what we're talking about, the we. Like who's your we? Where are you in relationship to other people and society? And then outside of that, you've got your soul. And the reason that they put the soul on the outside is because the soul is sort of like the the big hug around all the other parts of you that makes you what you
0: are <laughs> it's the thing that holds together all those different parts of you and yeah. so a, a and boy that the conversation about the soul i thought was maybe the best part of the chapter mm-hmm. so i'm going to get to there quick but he talks about how um people can be soulless like mm-hmm. in, in the bible even talks about it like a soul can need to be restored and mm-hmm. the psalmist says he restores my soul Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me just read this. It says, one of the promises of the great shepherd in Psalm 23 is that he restores my soul. Then in Psalm nineteen-seven, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. You may never have thought of the law in that connection, but in actuality, the law of God is simply God's ways. When we identify with God's ways, we come in touch with a deep source of direction and energy and it restores our soul. Mm-hmm. So in other words, um, how does, you know, how does meditating on God's law, restore my soul. Well, it does it because it gives you a way to live and integrate your being mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't know. I thought that that was really fascinating. It made sense of a passage that, oh, just really concentrating on trying to do all the laws yep. right. No, that's not what it is. Yeah. it is. It's saying, here's how you should live in order to be a person with a soul.
1: If you want your soul to get deep and rich... It's got to be integrated and whole and that Mm -hmm. happens like as you interact with interact there my 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 Minnesota came out as you interact with God you um, find yourself getting restored renewed one thing after another as you have that deep connected bonded relationship with God it begins to they talk about in the book um your soul is this most inclusive part of you that it it spills over into all the other parts of your life and so it's
0: like the glue mm-hmm. for all the rest of it and, and so, so
1: all these other parts are like separated in some ways you feel sometimes like your body and your mind are not on team a together mm-hmm. <laughs> right you, you feel
0: disintegrated yeah mm-hmm. you need your soul to be restored
1: yeah and so that's just like we talk about like um you know voldemort's soul getting split in all those pieces and and that remorse and the ability to um you know grieve and heal Mm -hmm. is what will fix it and reintegrate those things and if you wonder if that's biblical you can remember that you know when jesus is asked like what's the most important thing for us to know he's like love your lord god with all your heart and soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself and there's no greater command than commandment than these. So it's love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know this is like old, 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 old law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor. So it's it's if you think about if you look at this um, that graphic that we shared about your infinite environment. That's what Jesus is saying like you've got to whole person holistically be connected with God that's your ultimate aim. Like that's yeah. how to live your life. That's the heart, what you're soul, pursuing. mind and
0: strength is pointing to like all the disparate parts of who you are needs to be brought together. And for one purpose, mm-hmm. loving God, loving others.
1: And so to tie up for today, um, I think it's really important when you understand the parts of yourself and how they are related, when you can start to like step outside of what's happening in the moment and observe what's happening and start to understand what's happening um in relationship to the different parts of yourself in your life you can make more targeted efforts to change as a person (laughs) so you talked you said something about this earlier like rather than just like saying i'm gonna concentrate Mm -hmm. on the love of god and hopefully i become a loving person but we can't really do that (laughs) but if you want to practice yourself into a more integrated character one thing you can do is if you pull up this chart Name any problem you consistently are having in your life that really just leaves you like the I like to say the problems at night when you put your head on the pillow and you're like, Mm oh I did that again (laughs) Or, you know, so a great relatable example is if you find yourself to be really impatient with your kids Mm -hmm. You know, you just cannot handle their incessant needs and you get sure. impatient with them. It's super relatable, and every night when you lay to you know lay down and go to sleep, everything's playing through your mind. Like all this stuff, you wish you hadn't done that way mm-hmm. all day. You know you can't get the day back. And so, if you think about this chart, you can name a problem. Like I am really impatient with my kids, and instead of saying God make me more patient, you can start to think about the different spheres in your life, and start to name the places where your impatience might be taking root. So what are the causes of your impatience? And so maybe in your deepest heart, your spirit, you want to be patient. Like you want to respond with love, but you don't, but you might start to think like spirit, mind, body, social, soul. So if you think, why am I so impatient? Well, maybe I have external, you know, issues going on with, you know, like, I keep saying yes to too many things and then I'm so busy and then when my kids need something, I don't have time to stop.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> so rather than just saying, God, make me more patient, maybe you have to make practical steps to have more time
2: mm-hmm.
1: for your kids to interrupt you. Yeah. So you're not mad at them all the time. Maybe you, you know, you think about like body, maybe you are too tired to think straight when you're with them. Maybe you have to choose to go to bed at a certain time. And wake mm-hmm. up at a certain time so that you're not so tired, so you have more mental space for it. You yeah. know, there, there's so many different ways that rather than just saying, God give me patience, you know, say, God help me see the the small choices I'm making that lead to a place where I have a deficit when it comes to time with my kids to let them be children. <laughs> so yeah. does that make sense?
0: Yep. So um yeah, maybe maybe the um the dysfunction is happening in a, in one area of your life and it's affecting this area of your life Mm -hmm. and some deep reflection can help reveal that. But, and also keeping in mind what we talked about earlier about, um, how character formation happens at that subconscious level of mutual mind with God under attachment, you know? And so sometimes the best thing to do is just to remember that God's smiling at you, Mm -hmm. you know, like you can't, your character cannot change if you don't know that you're attached, that you're loved, that you're safe Mm -hmm. and secure in that relationship. And so, yeah, those two things together, Mm -hmm. I think, would be a much more powerful approach to change than (laughs) than our our gritting our teeth and trying to bootstrap through it.
1: Yeah, because you can know that God loves you, but it doesn't feel like it makes much difference. But when you partner it with the fact that you have an ability to deliberately choose a better life, um, you can't just choose your way into a better life, you have to partner with a God who's capable of making you into a better person. But when you have those two things together, you can see that you're loved and you've been given power to align your will with God's will and see real change happen. Which
0: is some, some pretty cool things to, um, to lean into, I'd say. So next week, are we doing five and six? Yeah. All right. The good thing is, I read all the chapters. It's not uh, like I came not having read.
1: Episode three is going to be five, six, and seven.
0: Five, six, and seven. Yeah, there you all go. All right. <laughs> awesome. Well, there you have it, guys. We have covered a lot of ground.
1: And we've covered nothing compared to what the book covers. So you should just read the book.
0: I mean, but the book doesn't cover Yetis, it at least doesn't. as far as I know. No. So, I mean, we we've...
1: came with the Yeti and the fairy content, the book came <laughs> with everything else. <laughs> yeah
0: thanks for listening everybody (laughs) hope you tune tune in next time